0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning. I'm glad to see you all this morning. We're going to be studying um, Philippians today, and actually I'll be doing this for three weeks so if you're able to be here for all three great if not it's going to be on the website so you can always listen in. Um, but let's begin with a prayer dear father we thank you and praise you for your servant Paul and for those early Christians and we ask Lord even now as we open your word that you would open our hearts to hear your voice that you would strengthen us as we face whatever it is we face in this life even as we look forward to um, to the time when we'll be with you Without any obstacles in our relationship, we'll be with you for all eternity. And so we ask, Lord, that the joy of what awaits us would shed its light back into our lives today and give us strength for the journey. And so we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, um, Philippians is just such a fun, beautiful letter, if you've ever read it. Um, It's just so, it's so full of joy. That's one of the things that's well known about it. It's the word joy and rejoice are mentioned so many different times, which is interesting because of the setting of the letter. And so one of the things when I teach on a specific letter, I always like to ask myself when I'm reading, or other people as we're reading together, I like to ask those who, what, where, when, why questions. But in this context, it makes sense to ask them who, when, where, what, why, how. So who, well this is Paul's letter to the Christians that were in the town of Philippi in Macedonia, And when was he writing? Well, he was writing, we think, roughly circa around A.D. 62 or even 63, um, where Paul was writing from Rome, where he was imprisoned, And if you read along in the book of Acts, you'd find out why he was in prison in Rome. This was um, his first imprisonment in Rome that happened as a result of him being in Jerusalem and being arrested by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem because they were afraid that he'd brought a Gentile into the temple. And so he was arrested and it was several years. Um, He was in prison in Caesarea for a few years and then he appealed to Rome and and to Caesar. And so for that reason, he was taken um, by boat to Rome, and we think I think he actually appealed intentionally, knowing that he would get to go to Rome and preach the gospel in Rome. He'd get a free ride on their boat. Um, so even though he was in chains, um, so there he is. He's writing from Rome. We know that he had already written the letter to the Colossians and the letter of Philemon or Philemon before writing from Philippians and Philippi. So he's writing from Rome to Philippi. Philippi was a town in Macedonia. Macedonia is northern Greece. So if you think of Athens and Corinth, those, that's also Greece, but that's southern Greece further out on the peninsula. Northern Greece was a little bit different culturally and ethnically. And Philippi was a, a town where um, it was named after Alexander the Great's father, father Philip. And it also um, it had this special character to it that it was considered a Roman colony, even though it was ethnically Macedonian. What had happened, um, if you recall... From Shakespeare or from Greek or from Roman history, excuse me, that there was that Julius Caesar was betrayed, right, stabbed in the back um, by some of his friends, even, and those friends then fought over who would lead the Roman Empire, and so one of the final battles um, was between Octavian and Mark Antony, and it happened actually in the fields outside of Philippi, and so when Octavian won the battle and was proclaimed Caesar, Caesar Augustus was his Caesar name, he was so thankful to the gods, the pagan gods, that he then took this city of Philippi, and he was going to claim that city um, as a Roman colony. He made automatically, in one day, he made all of the citizens of that city to be perpetual Roman citizens, which was a huge honor and a huge gift for that town. So they were very proud of that fact. And as we go throughout this in the next couple of weeks, you'll see why that little historical factor would have something important for them spiritually as Paul is addressing them. So Paul is writing from Rome to Philippi, and what is Paul saying basically? Well, one of the number one messages and I would even say the number one message all throughout the book of Philippi, all throughout this or Philippians, all throughout this letter is that he is calling those early Christians to stand united in their faith. Multiple times over he says he urges them to have a like mind, a mind um, that would be the same mind as each other, that they would agree, is the way we paraphrase this in English. He's longing for them to be united so that they would be able to bear witness to the love of Jesus Christ, to those who didn't know him in their town of Philippi. And so that's one of the basic messages. And we know that he's asking this because, and calling for this, because there was already a disagreement. And it was definitely a disagreement among Philippian leaders. Um, and so um, even the leadership needed to have this reminder and this call to agree with one another. And it's, uh, it's clear that we don't know what they were agreeing about. I would love to know. I will look forward to asking Paul in heaven, what were they or them, what were they disagreeing about. But what's certain is that if it was something theological, if it was about doctrine or the gospel itself, Paul would have clearly said, listen to so-and-so, other people have it wrong, here's the gospel don't um, don't forget the gospel and don't listen to anyone who doesn't preach it or teach it. But rather it appears as though it had to do with the gospel, but that it wasn't, um, Both options were morally equal and that they were simply disagreeing about how to go about living out their faith. Um, and so he's urging them to agree. He doesn't say who is right and who is wrong. He's saying both of you are wrong because you're disagreeing, which is kind of interesting. Um, So, again, why is he telling them to stand united with a like mind because of the disagreement and also because there was beginning to be some persecution from outside of them. Um, Within the town of Philippi there had already been persecution of the Christians from the very beginning when Paul himself was there, which is narrated in Acts chapter 16. If you recall, Paul um, had a vision to go into Macedonia he went to Macedonia answered the Lord's vision through the power of the Holy Spirit and when he got there he went there weren't there wasn't a synagogue which meant there weren't 12 Jewish men you had to have at least 12 Jewish men to be able to have a synagogue in a town and so he went to the river on a on a Saturday on a Sabbath morning because he figured that there he would find god-fearers he would find either some Jews and or some Greeks who wanted to worship The God of Israel and so he went out there and who did he find? Does anybody remember who he found at the river? Lydia. Lydia. He found a woman who was a businesswoman who traded in purple cloth and was from a different region. She was visiting. um, She was probably doing business in Philippi. She appears to be very successful. She was likely a widow. She was the head of her household. And um, she immediately, after hearing the gospel, believed and came to faith. Mm -hmm. And so Paul stayed on there with his companions and talked for a little while. um, And then he got into trouble. Does anybody remember why Paul might have gotten into trouble there? Because over another woman, actually. He and his friends were in the marketplace, and there was a girl who was enslaved. And she was possessed by a demonic spirit. And she would call out after them, I know who you are. I know who you serve. Um, and it was so annoying to Paul that finally, after many days of this, he finally just told, exercised the demon. Mm-hmm. And she was free. She was free from this uh, demonic enslavement, from this mm-hmm. spiritual um, torture, really. And when she, he freed her, what that meant was she was no longer able to tell people's fortunes. And so her masters were out of a lot of money. And they got very upset, and they put Paul and Silas in prison. Um, But if you recall, as Paul and Silas were in in prison, they had been beaten first before questions were asked. It was assumed that they were not Roman citizens because they were outsiders and visitors to the town of Philippi. They were beaten first and then put in prison. And anybody remember what happens in prison? As as it says in Acts 16, they're singing and praising the Lord, even probably while they're bleeding and oozing and sore, and praising the Lord that they were given the opportunity to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing to do to praise him for that. And in the middle of that moment of worship, prison doors flung open. And they could have left, but they stayed, and they saved the Philippian jailer's life. The Philippian jailer, if he had been found out, if it had been known that he let these prisoners go free, his life would have been forfeit. And so he was about ready to throw himself on his sword, and they say, wait, 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 don't do this. We're not leaving, we're right here. Essentially, they were willing to show him that they would even give their lives to save his life. They would rather give their lives and stay in prison and be probably killed than have him fall on his sword. And he's so won over by this sacrificial love. He not only has um, he's seen the gospel, in in action right there in Paul and Silas and so then he asks what must I do to be saved and they tell the gospel to him isn't it amazing that having done the gospel they say the gospel and that word of the gospel rings true in his heart he comes to faith in his whole household as well so this Philippian church was built on these two households Lydia's household and the Philippian jailers household and it was also a church that was marked by suffering from the very beginning And it's likely that they were experiencing other suffering as a church from, um, they as a church were experiencing suffering from their other citizens in Philippi that were not Christians, and that the persecution was going to get worse. And so Paul talks about his own suffering, and this is what we're going to look at today, especially Paul's open handedness with regard to his own suffering and how he is, um, he is, he's being true to what's going on with him. He's telling the truth about what's going on with him, but he's also using his own example as a way of hopefully inspiring them in the midst of the suffering that they too will experience to keep their eyes <coughs> on Jesus, to hold things, um, open, with an open hand in light of the reality that's theirs for all eternity. So um, again, one other how, how does he tell them the what and the why of the letter? Well, it it feels as though the letter itself is a thank you letter. They had just supported him and sent him some support, some financial support while he was in prison, which is great, Um, but it also, he uses the word partnership, which describes this kind of financial partnership, but it also describes that koinonia fellowship that we have as Christians with each other. We can call each other brothers and sisters because God has bought each one of us with the precious blood of his son. And so we are his sons and daughters. We are brothers brothers and sisters of each other. We have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And then we also have fellowship with each other. And that sweet fellowship is present in this letter. The things that they were dealing with, yes, these disagreements were not nearly as egregious as what some of the other churches were dealing with. Just think about Corinth, with all of their moral issues, with their um, complete um, confusion about the gospel. Paul... Um, considers the church at Corinth to be immature in certain ways. He won't let them support him financially. But Philippi is mature in their faith, and he will let them support him financially. And so this letter, there's a lot of mutuality in this letter that's really beautiful. And another way that he uses it, one thing, he also talks about joy, and I mentioned that before. The joy just rings out all throughout the letter. (laughs) Um, And finally, he uses the examples, as I mentioned, of himself um, and also of two of his companions, Timothy And Epaphroditus was a Philippian who came with the offering, the gift for Paul, and was with Paul, and he sent back with the letter, and then also, above all, the example of Jesus Christ himself, and the example of his humility of mindset, and that's what we'll look at next week, is that mind of Christ, having this mind of Christ, which is so present in Philippians chapter 2. So, one of the ways in which we'll go through this is that we will, um, I want to be able to get through the whole book, it's only four short chapters, and so my, even though we only have three weeks, we'll try to get through all four chapters just by reading through, but my themes for the classes are found mostly in those chapters, but also a little bit in the other chapters too, so bear with me if I jump ahead a little bit out of the passage that we're reading. One thing that I would encourage you, if you plan on being to all, being at all three classes, or if you want to get to know the book really well on your own. Um, One of the things I always encourage, especially with these shorter letters, I find it really helps to sit down and read the letter all at once. Very often, we're so used to cutting and pasting different memory verses, and Philippians have a lot of really amazing memory verses, or inspirational verses, or maybe you get the verse of the day sent to your phone or your email. Those are all wonderful things, But when we um, take them out of context, we miss out sometimes on the depth of meaning and the richness of what God might have for us through any one particular verse because we don't see the bigger picture of the whole line of thought. And so that's where these letters are so short. I'd encourage you to try to sit down and read it through even once a week. It would only take 15 or 20 minutes to read through it um, it, depending on how fast you go. And there's a merit to going a little bit faster if you're reading the whole book um, because you'll be able to see the bigger picture even if you sometimes like, I'm not really sure what that sentence is saying, but I'm going to keep going. Um, So any thoughts or questions about that before we dig into chapter one? Paul, in his letters, often begins them, there's a set format, often like an email, to, from, regarding, and greetings. Um, And so Paul, in this letter, um, even in the standard letter format, Paul often will change things according to different themes for each individual church that he's writing to, and that will be present here as well. So um, let's begin. I'd love to um, stop talking for a minute and let someone else talk. If you can see the um, scripture passage, on, on it's a, it is a vision test, so if you're able to see it and want to, <laughs> and want to read along, I'd love to have someone else talk. Anybody else want to read that? It's Epaphroditus is your name. I know that. I'll wrong. read it. Okay, just more. What's yep. on the book. Paul Perfect. and Timothy, servants Perfect. of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. Thank you so much. Um, again, in this to and from, there are some qualifiers. First of all, about him and Timothy, he often, in almost all of his letters that we have, Paul describes himself as an apostle which is true, he's an apostle or a sent one of Jesus Christ. But him, um, he often mentions his apostolic authority as a way of justifying his leadership over a particular group. But here his leadership is not in question at all. And so the way he characterizes and identifies himself and Timothy, who's um, helping him write the letter, the way he identifies himself is not just as servants. In the original language, it says slaves, slaves of Jesus Christ, humble, lowly, <coughs> Servants, um, and he's doing that to be able to emphasize that that's really the calling of all, Jesus, all all followers of Jesus Christ that we're called to be humble servants of each other and of those outside the church. So again, he's trying to show by lead by example. The other thing, the qualifier about the uh, Philippians is that it's interesting. Of course, it would be to all the saints, all those Christians in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Of course, the overseers and deacons are included in the all the saints, but he's underlining these kinds of leaders for a reason, and we suspect that it's because the disagreement has gone to the very um, levels of leadership, upper levels of leadership within the church. And so he is mentioning to them explicitly, this letter is for you. (laughs) I want you to listen to what I'm saying. Um, And we even later on in chapter 4, we find out that two of the people that are disagreeing in particular that he names are two women that he calls... um, ones who have labored side by side with Paul in the gospel who are fellow workers with Paul which is interesting so they would have been seen perhaps um, in those terms of deacons or overseers that he uses at the beginning Um, and they're definitely disagreeing with each other Paul continues in chapter 1 verse 3 someone else want to read this one Okay. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always praise always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring to it completion the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Pat. Isn't that beautiful? This prayer of thanksgiving um, in place of a secular well-wishing, Paul's letters often proceed after his greetings, after his introduction and greetings, with a prayer or a benediction. Um, And here the prayer is one that is full of joy. Do you hear it? In thanksgiving for their partnership, there's that concept that I mentioned, that friendship, that fellowship, their sharers in God. And the thanks is especially to God the Father, who's the one who's given to these believers the maturity to be able to share and be partners with Paul in this way. And Paul um, continues on with, this is important in this letter, the confidence, um, again, as, even as he's thanking God, he's confident that God is the one who will continue to work within it, it them. Um, he's confident that God is able to finish what he started in, in them. Um, they're currently being immature in certain ways, but Paul trusts that God is going to work now. out. There's also a sense of completion, and this is what we'll talk about in our third session, that there's a sense in which the whole letter looks forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, to the last day, Um, in anticipation of what will come. There's this, um, so then, how shall we live in this life because of what will come? Okay, let's keep going. I'll read this one. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ of Christ Jesus Excuse me. I love this part of the prayer because you see Paul is often given credit for being so rational and his rhetoric is so beautiful but his heart shines through every one of his letters he is so passionate and his affection, he's not one to hold back on his feelings. <laughs> like, he doesn't uh, hold back on what he really thinks or what he really feels. And he's so lavish in telling them how much he loves them, how much he cares for them, how and how they're sharers in the gospel. And it's interesting how partaking with Paul in the gospel of grace, there's that receiving. We often think of our faith as being um, unidirectional. It's about us and God. And here Paul is showing that, Um, We're united, even as we're united with God through Jesus Christ, we're also united with each other. And there is this horizontal component to our faith. We are really brothers and sisters in Christ. And part of the sharing in grace involves sharing in all of the benefits and the good things of the gospel, as well as in the suffering um, that comes about through being called by the name of Jesus. The suffering that comes about through striving to allow God to cause our lives to be conformed to the example of Jesus Christ. And so he's getting at that through his own imprisonment and through the suffering that they are, are experiencing and will continue to experience. And so he continues to pray. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Did you hear that? There, I love that prayer that their love would abound. I just think of this kind of liquid grace um, just flowing, free form flowing um, in relationship with each other. It seems as though their love has dried up a little bit um, and he's asking, he's praying that the Lord um, would cause it to flow even as they're plugged into God's grace and love. And this knowledge, the, part, the way our minds play in to our hearts um, is totally holistic. Um, in the, for the ancients, especially for the ancient Hebrews. They didn't see a separation. The Greeks were the ones that had a separation between mind and heart, um, between matter and, um, and mind. And that's not something that the Hebrew mindset had room for. And so Paul doesn't see a separation between mind and heart. Rather, he acknowledges that knowing the gospel and discerning about the gospel will only cause their love to abound more and more. So this knowledge of Christ, that they would know Christ even more, and that as they know him, that knowledge would play itself out in the way they live their lives. Again, forward-looking, that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to get now into, um, now that Paul has begun his letter with prayer, and a prayer of thanksgiving to God, now we, we look at him getting now into... Um, how, what's going on with him? And in any kind of letter, just think about your texting streams back and forth. With mine is, I always have a constant one going with my family members, who all we all live in different places. So there's just this. Thank goodness for modern technology. Um, but you often, if you've, if it's been a little while since communicating with someone, you often will ask, of course, how are you? This is how I'm doing. It's just part of our basic um, way of interacting with each other. Well, Paul is doing this. In his letter, he's giving them first news here's how I'm doing, and then he's going to give instruction about how he wants them to be doing. He already knows how they're doing a little bit because of the report of Epaphroditus. Um, But so he starts out with how he's doing. Um, And of course, because of their mutual affection, the Philippians would naturally be concerned about Paul's imprisonment. So he's going to reassure them about some of the positive outcomes of this imprisonment. So he writes. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So two benefits of his suffering and his imprisonment. First, that those in the imperial guard, that's part of how we know he's in Rome. Um, that he's under the guard of Caesar's own, Caesar's own guards are guarding him right there. Um, That even throughout Caesar's household, they're hearing about the gospel, which is great. They're probably taking turns Standing with him, being chained to him, or being in the same room where he is, and he's preaching the gospel to anyone that will hear it, all of his visitors, um, anyone that happens to be in the room, and they're getting to hear the gospel, and so that's one of the benefits of his imprisonment. And then the second thing, he says that because he is so bold, even while being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, so many other Christians who are in Rome but are free and not, not in prison have also become bold to be able to speak the word of the gospel without fear. So he's being very positive about this imprisonment. Um, And he goes on. He's now going to give an example. Remember, he's imprisoned. And we know enough about Paul to know that he wanted to preach the gospel. Everywhere he was, he loved to preach the gospel. So he gives an example of other people in Rome, other leaders in the church in Rome who are preaching the gospel, um, but not necessarily for the right motivation. Um, And so he's doing this in order to show those Philippians, how they ought to also engage when they have rivalry among themselves there in Philippi. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Um, some people were kind of turning turning the knife in a sense and um, kind of sticking it to that, oh, poor Paul, you're in there. Oh, it must be so hard not to go and preach to this crowd of whatever or I've got this in to get to go preach there. And just the way human sin can still leak into even our most Christian relationships and they can become uh, a rivalry unfortunately that's what's happened even among the Christian leaders there in Rome and yet what he's saying is that he's he's going to for he's going to exercise forbearance he's demonstrating right there that love and charity that humility of the mind of Christ to say it doesn't matter if these people are getting all sorts of accolades for preaching the gospel because what matters is the gospel is being preached and so um, if they were preaching a false gospel if they were not truly Christians would have denounced them outright, Um, but the fact that they are true Christians just operating out of their old selfishness, um, uh, it's it's dismaying, and yet he's showing it so that those Philippians would not be dismayed when their fellow Christians are also operating out of the old person, out of their own selfishness. I, I, I have said, these seem to be friends, but they're really um, frenemies. Have you heard that? <laughs> I hope you don't have any frenemies, but I think everybody probably does. And it hurts even more when your friends hurt you, doesn't it, than when people that have never really even expressed any affection or love for you do hurt you. So these frenemies are preaching the gospel out of selfish, selfish ambition, ambition ru- seeming to rub salt in the wounds of Paul's imprisonment. Um, but it doesn't matter. Again, this humility of Paul's is an act of faith and submission to Jesus Christ. Well, let's keep going. This is the part that's really what we're about today. Paul um, talks about what's going to happen to him as a result of his imprisonment. Um, It's possible that he'll be executed. Um, And so he's facing that possibility and demonstrating what it looks like to face that possibility with great faith in Jesus Christ. And so he writes to the Philippians, Um, I think it embodies what it means to be a Christian. It embodies the way we as Christians are to face all of life and even face our death at the last day. I think of so many people that I know of that are engaged in some kind of suffering, and I think we all experience suffering in this lifetime, and um, some at different degrees. And sometimes, maybe if you're like me, you realize that your suffering is low grade, suffering in comparison to other people's. If you ever know someone who's lost a child or who, has experienced something traumatic on that order of of um, suffering. I often, um, I'm thankful, and yet, um, even so, suffering is suffering no matter what. Um, and so I think one way, um, it doesn't help, one thing I try to do sometimes in my flesh is I say, well, Deborah, why are you feeling this way? So-and-so is dealing with this, which is so much bigger. You need to just buck up and look, you know, be thankful for what you have. That doesn't help us, does it? Telling ourselves that doesn't change our circumstances. But I think what Paul is doing does actually help us endure in the midst of our circumstances. And so what he's talking about, he's talking, he's expressing with great faith that through the prayers of the Christians and through the help of the Holy Spirit, he knows that his imprisonment, his suffering, will turn out for his deliverance. But do you hear what's amazing about this? He's praying and he's saying, it will turn out for my deliverance whether I'm executed or not what's so interesting is that deliverance in the New Testament, in this life, from some of our suffering, doesn't always mean a change in circumstances. And I don't know about you, but often for my loved ones especially, I will pray for a change in circumstances. And I think that's okay, but we pray for a change in circumstances, holding our hands open, trusting that though our circumstances might not ever change, God will still strengthen us in the midst of it. And so often throughout the New Testament, the deliverance is not necessarily get me out of this boiling hot water, but rather give me the strength to stand in the midst of it. And I think about this just through my own um, through my own experience. One of the greater sufferings, which still is low grade compared to what other people have experienced, but one of the sufferings of my adult years have been just being single for so long. I didn't get married until 30, 35, um, which feels old, older in certain settings, I hate to use that word, not for myself, but for other people who might be that age and single. Um, but but for me, as I was praying and longing for the desire of my heart, I, I also prayed and trusted, I knew that the Lord might not give me what I wanted because we don't always get what we want from the Lord. He's not a vending machine where we can just, well, I put in my 65 cents, Lord, why is my Kit Kat not coming down? <laughs> and maybe you have that experience where you're praying for one particular outcome And you don't get it. And you think, well, I've done this and this and this and this. Lord, where's my outcome? Where is my Kit Kat bar? Well, um, in praying about my singleness, longing to get married, longing to have children, I also knew that the Lord, that might not be the Lord's will for my life. And I had to trust that it would be okay even if it was not the Lord's will for my life. Um, And part of that trust comes in knowing that the Lord is good, his character of of, um, goodness and mercy towards us. His sovereignty, his ability to be able to provide, even despite the odds, um, it, kind of a belief in miracles, in his ability both to be able to do something and to even desire to do something that we would perceive to be good and merciful for us. But even beyond that, um, I, pr- I pray that I knew that we're, would he not, if he hadn't decided to deliver me out of um, my singleness, he would make it bearable. He would make it not just bearable, but joyful. And indeed, He really did. Um, it really was only in my 20s where it was hard. Um, it's, always, I mean, it's always a struggle. But always He would provide for me such rich community um, through my family, through my church, um, through wherever I was. He ministered to my heart in the midst of whatever settings I found myself in. And so He extended grace to me, even if for a very long time He didn't give me the Kit-Kat bar that I wanted. And so for some people, there might not ever be that Kit-Kat bar. We might not ever get the answer to prayer that we long for and hope for, and yet we can trust that God will deliver us, um, even if He doesn't give us our desired outcome. Well, with Paul, it would seem as though his desired outcome—he seems to prefer to be with Christ. In other words, he would prefer to die, and he um, goes on to talk about that in his next little bit, which is unusual. Um, so we'll talk about that um, in just a second. Um, but again. Would that this motto, um, let's go back. I love this last little verse, verse 21. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I get the Kit Kat Pahar, great. If I don't, great. Um, I will have Christ either way. There will be a gain for me either way in Him. Somehow He'll be doing something. I didn't um, go on to say this, but I do think for all those years of singleness, I do think the Lord was delivering me in some ways from myself. Delivering me from the idolatry, delivering me from pride. Um, I kept, you know, from the pride of thinking, oh, I did what it took and I nabbed this man. That's often sometimes how you feel in your 20s if you have any kind of dating success. Um, Or from my selfishness, um, from kind of holding too tightly onto those wonderful gifts of marriage and family. Um, So again, deliverance might be out of our specific circumstances or it might be out from... Um, some sins that have been um, clinging to us, and that somehow only in the midst of suffering mm-hmm. are we clinging to the Lord instead of clinging to our old way of living. So, again, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain is just an incredible Christian motto. Paul goes on, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fu- fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Do you see, he he, think, he thinks that God will actually have him live on because God wants more service out of him, um, that it will actually be more loving for him to live longer so that he could pour into other Christians, and yet he's ready to meet his maker. As Christians, part of our calling is to be ready to meet our Maker. The worst has happened to us um, in our own sin and selfishness, and God in His mercy has delivered us out from that and out from the eternal death that's the just punishment for it. And so, because that penalty for sin is removed from us, um, we can say to life, Do your worst. God has spared me from the worst. And so, I'd encourage you to look at this and to ask yourself, What is my worst fear? Wasn't it wonderful that Andrew was talking about our fears just now in his sermon? If you haven't heard it yet, you'll enjoy it at 11 o'clock. Just this fear that can grip us, um, this fear of what the world thinks or fear of what if this doesn't happen or what if I never get to do this. Those earthly fears can cloud out um, the gifts that God's given us and can cause us to care more about those things than about our Heavenly Father. And he, by his grace and mercy, um, again, because... We've been delivered from the worst, um, essentially that eternal death as the consequence for sin. What more have we to fear? Um, even as Paul says in Romans 8, who can condemn? Um, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And if God does not condemn us, then nothing else. Um, we, have, we don't have to fear of anything else in this world and in this life. And so um, some people, I, I have a friend in her 30s who is single and um, and she has already planned her own funeral. <laughs> and she's, she's got the all the whole thing is listed in a hidden place and one of our close friends knows where to find it if something were to happen to her. Which sounds really depressing and really macabre. <laughs> sounds morbid, uh, but she doesn't have suicidal ideation. She just is realistic about what will happen to each one of us. And so she's ready for what may come. Um, and yet even so, she said to me, I don't fear necessarily death, but I fear some of the things in this life more than I fear death. And so for us, whether we fear death or some of the things in this life, we can trust that God who is for us in Jesus Christ is also for us in the midst of the suffering that we endure. Um, and so there are so many other examples of this throughout um, the book of Philippians, um, through the example of Paul himself, who will be poured out might be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. But he's glad anyway um, and we'll look at those um, in, a, in, the, in a two weeks in the, from chapter four um, but there is this one um, this same open-handedness about life or death helps Paul to say I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need I can do all things through him who strengthens me that wonderful verse comes through this context of Paul's suffering and potential death. And so I just want to close with this one um, quote that I love from Gerhard Forde's um, book on being a theologian of the cross. When we are grappling with our own suffering, when we understand our life in light of Jesus' death on our behalf, we have a certain freedom that comes about. Um, The worst has already happened. Um, And so um, all is well in light of the worst having already happened. So I'm going to read Forde and then I'll close this in prayer. And you can stay back and ask me any questions if you want. We see in the death of Jesus our death, and we remember that we are dust. We can begin to take the truth. We learn dying. Our story is not that of the exit from and return to glory of an undying soul. The cross destroys all that. It destroys the wisdom of the wise. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That marks the parameters of our story as far as human possibility is concerned. We see, as Luther puts it, the way things really are. We look at all things through suffering and the cross. We live only on the strength of the fact that the Creator breathed His Spirit into the dust and gave us life. We live on borrowed time, time lent us by the Creator. Yet we also see in the death of Jesus on the cross a rebellion against that life. And we note that there is absolutely no way out now except one. God vindicated the crucified Jesus by raising Him from the dead. So the question and the hope comes to us. If we die with him, shall we not also live with him? That is the end of the story for the time being, but it is the beginning of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son Jesus by whom we have freedom and life and hope. Um, we thank you, Lord, for your love that has really truly overwhelmed us and freed us from the fear of of all earthly things. And so we ask indeed that you would continue to do that work in us, that you would give us the grace like Paul to hold our lives with open hands, trusting in you for all of your provision, for all of what we need in this life and the next. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.